0: Welcome to the Living It Up podcast. Welcome to the Living It Up podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of competitive golf, which we discuss in an unbiased and neutral way, calling balls and strikes on both the PGA Tour and Live Golf and all other competitive golf in between. Each week, we discuss the week that was in golf. And we also have some special episodes that dive into a particular topic. And in this episode, we're excited to sit down with Scott Fawcett, the creator of the decade system, which can help all golfers at all ability levels improve their scores using a methodology to easily select optimal targets that consider the entire shot pattern. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zero Restriction, the leader in outdoor technical golf apparel. You know you need some gear to better manage the elements, so head to zerorestriction.com and use code LIVINGITUP30 for a very generous 30% off your purchase. This is Brian. I am joined by George and PJ Tour veteran, Billy Hurley III. Let's get started with you, George. What should listeners look for in our conversation with Scott Fawcett?
1: So it was really, really fascinating. Like I, as someone who is, like I said, between a two and a four index, and I'm always trying to be like, well, why can't I get to be better? Um, and and I know for me, 90% of it's just decision-making out on the course. And so, you know, he really gets into sort of why, you make these what appear to be common sense choices um, and like the methodology behind it. And, you know, I'm pretty excited. Like I, I'm going to actually start using the decade system this spring and in track to see like, Hey, is this really going to, and see how much it can, it can get me better. Uh, Cause he really goes in depth on, on decision-making and where a lot of people kind of get hung up and make that one wrong turn. And as a golfer, everybody knows, all it takes is one bad shot to easily make two. And and so it's really for people who are out there thinking about how can I improve? What are some thoughts on getting better? Um, I think this is a really great listen because he dives into really the decision making to shoot more lower scores more often. Terrible grammar, but that's what we got.
0: No, well well said. I think we understand that. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, tour level players like Billy, they sort of have some of the discipline of decade to a degree already ingrained in the way that they've, you know, learned to score, learned, learned to shoot consistently low scores. But I think there's something to be found here for every level of golfer, whether you're a touring professional, an elite amateur, five handicap, 10, 15, all, all handicap levels. I think there's a lot that anyone can, can pick up. Uh, with what we talk about with Scott. So without any further ado, let's jump to our conversation with Scott Fawcett. Scott Fawcett, welcome to the Living It Up podcast. We're excited to chat with you about the Decade system. And, and I think most of our listeners are at least familiar with the high-level concept of Decade. But I thought we could actually start for those that may be not so familiar with Decade. You know, Tell us about your background in the game of golf and, and how you really got started with the Decade system.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. I, you know, it's uh, These conversations are always fun, especially with some PJ Tour players and a couple smart guys like yourself, so I, I really love seeing where these things meander around, but you know, my background is I'm actually probably the poster boy of what I would be looking for to work with in a player right now. I actually played, I'm, I mean, I'm 6'1", 220, I'm a pretty big guy for a 49-year-old golfer. Now, rewind this back 30 years ago whenever I was in high school, and I was a lot bigger than everyone, and so I really did play all the other sports through most of high school. So I didn't even specialize in golf until I got into college. Went to, uh, to Texas A&M, got finance and economics degrees. And, and you know, I'm pretty good with math and, and logic and whatever. But so then I went and played professional golf for a few years. And honestly, by the time I, I transferred from Sam Houston State to a and I had to sit out a year and a half because my college coach for my freshman year wouldn't release from my scholarship. Then I broke my leg halfway through my fourth year of school playing uh, basketball with the D1 basketball team shockingly that was a bad idea and so by the time I actually turned pro I bet I hadn't played in 20 or 30 54 hole events in my entire life and so I went out basically totally clueless on how to actually play golf but had some pretty good physical skills and, and you know it's funny because I traveled with Chad Campbell and Chris Riley a decent amount on the Hooters tour in 98 99 and I just remember always thinking like I, I feel like I'm better than these dudes but they just beat me like a drum. I mean, I won twice out on the Hooters Tour, which in hindsight, I have no idea how that was actually possible. But I just didn't know how to play golf. And so luckily for me, I, I, I quit playing in 2001 and started an electricity company when Texas deregulated its electricity market. And then I actually met Chris Como playing in an illegal underground poker game in about 2004 or five, And we started talking about golf and actually went out and started working my game with him. And in 2008, I, you know, I was just having dinner with a buddy and I told him I was a better player then as a 35 year old amateur with a full time job than I was as a 25 year old playing professionally. He was like, you know, why do you think that is? And it's it's just so funny looking back at the, you know, the connect the dots looking back to, over the last 20 years. And what I told him, I was like, you know, I, yes, I have a firm understanding of math and expectations and and everything, but until playing a lot of poker, I just didn't put it all together how i I do think of golf as a math game now like we all know that poker chess backgammon these are all math games you know i don't care what they look like it's a game of math and golf really at the end of the day is your shot pattern represents kind of the deck of cards in it where that's what introduces the variance and so you know i got to where i was playing pretty good so i actually entered q school that year as a 35 year old amateur and made it through all four stages now entering Q school and getting a, a corn ferry card with a full-time job is a lot easier than, then going out and playing full-time professional golf with a full-time job. So shockingly, that didn't work out very well, but then that's when they started relation to strokes gain statistics in 2011. And the first one that they released was putting. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is unbelievable. And I very quickly realized if these are kind of two or averages, like nobody's as good at putting as you would think. And so that was the one thing I felt like I really held me back was putting And in hindsight, my speed control just had to be atrocious. And so you really can start using the data to start solving a lot of these like mystical, mythical questions over the years of golf. And so then once, you know, Comb and I were talking about it one day and I realized that they were going to release the entire strokes game catalog, meaning, you know, what it takes, how many shots it takes to hold out from every inch from every starting position I'm like, well if I can quantify the size of a shot pattern, you know, just standard deviations of directional and distance control of about 85-ish percent of your shot pattern, I just throw out the all the outliers cuz they just don't matter. And then if I know how many strokes it takes to hole out from these scenarios, I can basically solve course management. And so I really was just doing it for my own game as a project through 2013 whenever I got my amateur status back, again, with the sole intention of trying to win the US Mid-Am uh, at some point in my life to play in the Masters. Like that was the point only because of an injury the week before the Texas or two weeks before the Texas AM in 2014, did I, you know, I, I got a quarter zone shot in my right elbow and the guy paralyzed my arm. Luckily, obviously it came back, but uh, he told me, he's like, you probably shouldn't play golf for six months. I'm like, I literally just did this half a billion cells of Excel code trying to solve this problem. And now I have to skip the summer. That's really awesome. Again, in hindsight though, it was probably the biggest blessing of my life because Know now, I don't have to explain who Will Zalatoris is, but at the time he was just a 17 year old junior at my home course. He was playing in the Texas Amateur, you know, I'd played a ton of golf and been helping him for years, but I was like, let me caddy for you. Met him, went and explained to him everything that I I had created and how it was going to work and why. And so then I caddied for him, and he won by three at the 2014 Texas Amateur. I went and caddied for him again the next month when he won the U.S. Junior. And then luckily again, everything is just so incredible how ridiculously lucky all this is, but because I've known Jason Enlow, the SMU coach at the time, since we were kids, he called me up and he was like, dude, I don't know what you're doing with Will, but it seems like it's something strategy related. Can you teach it to Bryson? So I put it all together for a little indoor seminar. So that way the NCAA would not consider me a third paid coach. And I taught it to Bryson in February of 2015 Three months later, he wins the NCAA's and US Amateur, and it's like apparently now I'm a strategy expert. So it's uh, that's the long potted bio, but I just think it's a hilarious story looking back at how much luck is involved in all of it. Um, I definitely halfway through the front nine, that first round at uh, at the Texas Amateur. I mean, Will's a stripe show. Maybe you've noticed at this point, he hit it as good at 17 as he does now. Like the kid has just always striped it. And he has hit it literally to like within a foot of where I've told him to for seven or eight straight holes to start off that nine. And we turned at one or two under, but I was like, I feel like this kid would have shot lower if he was just firing at every single flag. Like I definitely was conflicted when we made the turn of the first round, he finishes off shooting like 67 and has the lead and I'm driving home and I'm like, yeah, he's leading, but I swear to God, I feel like he would have shot lower if he was playing more aggressive here. And he probably would have that specific day. It was a very, very high anomaly round. But then we came back for the second round and he was nervous and freaking out and he hit it awful and hit it all over the lot. And just, it was the most wheels off round ever. And he shot 70. Now I was driving home and thinking, holy shit, that kid would have shot 80 if it weren't for what all we just worked on and that's really what reinforced it to me to start realizing there was definitely something there.
0: There's a lot there and I really appreciate you unpacking sort of the <laughs> genesis of your both your background and how you sort of came to the realization of you know the shots gained data and how that enforces or reinforces the idea that math you know math is so much intertwined in in golf. One of the best analogies I've heard it may have been you or others that like you know once you come to the realization that you're you're not a sniper, you're actually shooting a shotgun that's when it starts to go off for people that like, oh, so when I'm further away, the shotgun blast radius is, is larger and that's my variance and that's how I should maybe think about strategy. I'm curious, what are those light bulb moments for either folks in a seminar or folks you teach where they sort of get over the feeling of like, well, yeah, I sort of know when to shy away from a target or I, I know when to play conservative versus aggressive. Like when, do, when does that light bulb moment happen for people?
3: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zero Restriction. For more than 30 years, Zero Restriction has been the leader in outdoor technical golf apparel. Check them out at zerorestriction.com and use code LIVINGITUP30 for 30% off your purchase. Thanks to our friends at zerorestriction.com for their support of the Living It Up podcast. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, so when I first started giving the seminar, I used to just jump straight into approach shot strategy and just start teaching it. And then I had like these little bits of of psychologies kind of sparse throughout the entire day. But over the years, the seminars evolved to where the first hour, like I have a five hour seminar that I give. And the first hour and a half of it now is all mindset and shot patterns, because I've realized that's, it's mandatory. You understand the realities of shot patterns. So to your point yeah, Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely the guy that said you have a shotgun blast, not a sniper rifle, but critical to that shotgun blast is you don't know, like, let's, I don't know how many belt bullets or BBs or whatever they are in a shotgun, whatever they're called, but let's say it's 50 creating a, you know, a circular pattern out there. You just don't know which one of those is coming either. That's really the key. I know which one you want to come but you simply don't know which one is coming. So back to Will, that first nine holes, the BB in the dead center of the shot pattern just kept coming out for nine straight holes. And actually what would be interesting to go back and look at, and I, was, I, I thought of this this weekend while I was doing a seminar in Chicago, yes, he hit it directly at the target that I gave him for nine straight holes, but I'm not sure if he actually hit it pin high. So And, and you have to do both in golf. That's the hardest part about golf is, the three foot expectation on tour is one shot to hole out. The eight foot expectation on tour to hole out is one and a half shots. So, in the first five feet from it's good to it's a coin flip, you lose a half a shot of value. It takes 24 more feet to lose the next half shot of value to, out to 32 feet. So, I mean, yes, I'd rather you be 25 feet than 20 or 20 feet than 25 feet. But at the end of the day, I really don't care. Like, it's not that big of an injury. You're Probably two putting both of them the vast majority of the time but I'd really rather you be three feet than five feet. And and kind of where you really see this with people is the difference in expectation from a four foot to six foot putt is essentially the exact same in difference in expectation, expectations just being strokes to hole out. The difference in four to six feet is basically the exact same as 30 to 60 feet. So if someone said, would you rather have a four foot putt or a six foot putt or a 30 foot putt or a 60 foot putt? I think that people would overwhelmingly say, well, I would rather have the 30 footer than the 60 footer then the four to six feels pretty similar. Like, no, they're literally ascent. One's point two one and one is point point two three shots difference. Like they're basically the same. And so that light bulb moment really comes, comes from the idea of shot patterns. And again, it gets back to like the idea of a deck of cards. You, you know, I know which cards you want to come off if you're playing blackjack, but you just don't know which one it is. And then the idea of like loss aversion starts factoring in because if you hit on 18 and blackjack the entire table is going to freak out well there's still a 23 percent chance you don't bust like which is shockingly high the table's going to act like lightning struck if you don't bust but the problem with the math and where it really gets thrown into the casino's favor is sure there's a 23 percent chance you don't bust and there's still a 30 percent chance you're still going to lose the hand you can hit on 18 not bust and there's still a really high chance you're going to lose the hand and that's where the whole thing like with 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 you know, golf. Unless you hit it inside of eight feet, again, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Closer's better, yes. But if you start missing even a fractional amount more of, of greens and regulation, you just destroy the math immediately.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. And it, it, when I was playing mini tours before, you know, stats were being kept for me. You, you, you know, I would keep my own stats and had my Excel spreadsheet and kind of, you know, would run regression on it and try and figure out how to get better. You know, and it was. And and for me, it turned out there was one statistically significant category: greens and regulation. If I hit more greens, I shot a lower score. If I hit less greens, I shot a higher score. Like there was literally the only statistically significant. I mean, we. I, I mean, there's there's things I didn't track, right? Right. I mean, I but as far as distance from the hole and that kind of stuff back then, but um, greens and regulation it, is king. Yeah. It's just
2: well, 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 to your point, I was having lunch with Mark Brody one time, uh, the inventor of the strokes scan statistics. He's obviously an Ivy League business school professor, he's a heck of a lot smarter than I am. And we were having lunch with, I think it was David Ogren on this one. And he, you know, was at the PGA show. And, and Ogie asked, you know, what's the most important stat to track? And you know, Mark was like, I'll defer to you. And I feel like Mark probably knew what I was going to say. And he was going to correct me, which was again, the genius in him. And he was like, well, I'll defer to you first. Scott. And I was like, well, I mean, greens and regulation is the most correlated to score. So I would say that. And Mark goes, but that actually then makes it the least important stat to track. Because if somebody says I average 75, I can tell you, you probably average 60% of greens and regulation making up a number. And I'm like, damn, that's actually a really good point. It, but it, but it is a combination of like greens and regulation penalty shots off the tee. And then strokes gain putting and or like three putt avoidance because you can kind of infer a lot of stuff. And it's like that's just about all there is that you really need to track. I, I would, it would be so fun to go back to a guy like you who is successful on tour and see what were you tracking and what like how close were you? Because, again, the, 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 the thing that's cool about whenever I first started doing this back in 2011, I actually wrote a thread in an online poker forum called 2 Plus 2 that the thread was just titled just drive for show, putt for dough, really true. And you can see the genesis of all these ideas along with a lot of bad math as you're kind of like trial and erroring. Like I was kind of doing it in a public forum, which now I'm like, damn, I wish I could kind of hide that because there's a lot of really stupid stuff in there. But it's like you're trying to figure out the, the question to ask. Um, so that's really cool that you actually did like regression and everything on it. That's, that's what Tiger did is he started tracking. Why why do I feel like I should have shot lower every round? Like that's the key. I don't know how you, you know when you would finish a round of golf out on tour you finish and you think you should have shot lower i would just go laugh about all the stupid shit i did that day on the course and then i would never think twice about it tiger'd be like well, well i'd like to stop doing that <laughs> like me <laughs> i'd laugh about it get you know joke with my yeah. friends and then never once think about it again and tiger's like well how can i stop
3: yeah it's it's so funny what you just talked about penalty shots and, and basically three putt avoidance or three putts because i it, some of like one of my conclusions that I just came to in my head, right. I didn't not, this is not statistical, but it was just, I came to this conclusion. If I don't have a penalty shot and I don't three putt, I cannot shoot over par. Like that was just, that just became like a a true thing, you know?
2: Well, and, and, but in in, implicit in both of those ideas is if you don't have a penalty shot, you drive it fairly well. And if you don't have a three putt, your speed control is pretty good. Like that's, that's the key. Yeah, No, I'm just saying
3: like, the interesting thing is, is like, this is not, this is not math, right? This is in, yeah. in this case, right? This is just but you but you're spot on, like you know, coming to this conclusion on my own, like you know, that, just that's what I'm saying randomly, yeah. Or, that, or that's what I'm is, Yeah, the
2: the conclusion you came to is exactly spot on. But then, what's also interesting about it is is then you have to dig into what does that imply. Sure. And, and I'm a huge proponent of driving it as far as you can and shaping the ball one direction, and then. Again, in putting, the fact that speed is again, I, I get in trouble for saying it this dogmatically, but speed is all that matters. Again, I look back at my my playing career, and I could do the little drill where Tiger puts two tees on the outside of the putt, you know, outside of the club face, and get the club face through that gate perfectly every single time. Literally, that's enough information for me to know that my my line was probably pretty good, and then my speed control practice just consisted of me just randomly rolling balls all around the green. And that's just not good enough. You really need to do like orchestrated speed drills, in my opinion, because you start getting like reference points for lengths of putts. Again, this is how zalatoris again, where I get myself in trouble on Twitter all the time is, you know, I've been saying for five years, this is exactly how Will's going to go out on tour again with a little bit of a case of the yips, certainly not the best looking putting stroke, but he's going to putt fairly well against tour average because his speed control is immaculate. Now, utopian world. Let's don't have the yips and let's have the same speed control. And you're going to be one of the best putters that's ever walked the planet. I mean, that's all there's to it. So
1: we talked kind of before we got online here about how golf is a sport, no matter where you fall in it, you can always try to get better. Um, And so when I'm, you know, I'm, I kind of bobble between a two and a four index, looking at sort of brackets of, of indexes and players, like starting with you know, we'll say 10 plus handicaps working down using sort of the decade philosophy, what would be the the primary thing someone looking to go from a double digit index to a single digit index should focus on? And then, you know, once you become a nine, how do we get to be a five? And, and for me, you know, my big thing is I've shot even par. I've had, opportunities to go under par for 18 but like i've never actually broken through that wall like what's what's the thing that like a guy in my bracket should be focusing on to get kind of over that last hump focus on tennis
2: george golf's too hard (laughs) (laughs) no kidding focus on pickleball it's it's fun (laughs) love pickleball this this is a pro pickleball podcast it is a blast um i mean it's just all it's it doesn't matter what level you are. It's all ball striking, man. I mean, again, this is where people when they just won't take a second and and consider what I'm saying here, the people like, yeah, but the best players are, blah, I get it. The best players are better chipper and putters. I get it. But if you can get the ball to be covering 300 yards at a time, as opposed to worrying about, well, well that two inch putt counts the same as a 300 yard drive. I'm like, yeah, but that two inch putt's going to be for par instead of for bogey. If that first shot covered 300, like, it it is just all about ball striking. Um, I'd so, like to point
1: out that that three hundred yard drive has to go straight. As someone who it can no, pump, oh, it does not uh, have to go straight. We should play. It, it just
3: can't. It just needs to be on the playing surface. It needs to be
2: on the <laughs> playing surface. But again, this is where Jason Day back when he was number one in the world, third and strokes gained driving, just straight slides out of the seminar in the decade app. He hit 20 drives over at Johnson, Claire's place here in Fort Worth during the Byron Nelson and his shot pattern on a driving range was 74 yards wide. I mean, the size of shot patterns is absolutely staggering. And once you understand and accept that and then you're like, okay, well, number eight at, at pga west this year the for the for the week this was a, in an absolute dome like it is every year out there it's a dead straight par five that's the reason i use this hole there's not a player's not favoring a side there's not a dog leg where someone who's cutting it is making the shot pattern wider this thing is dead straight and everybody's aiming at the dead center of the fairway and the shot pattern again in a dome is 70 plus yards wide And it's just like once you start understanding these things well now if there's a lake on the left and our shot pattern is 70 yards wide how do we eliminate that lake by cutting it off of it by drawing it around it or by simply aiming 35 yards right of it like that's all there is to it and and again the guys on tour aren't total idiots when you look at the shot link images and there's a lake on the left it is centered almost the correct amount right but again the shot pattern starts becoming bigger because you will have guys that like to shape it a certain way when a lake is on a certain size, and so they will go They will go against their normal shot path shape with driver, and then some percentage of those guys will double-cross it, and so we'll have a few off the planet over there 100 yards right by the cart path. But for the most part, once you start understanding that you just want to shape the ball one direction with driver, you eliminate the double-crosses, and then that is what starts bringing – the, the, you know, I was about to say exponential outliers. I don't know if that's even the right way of saying, it, but the outlier shots, that's when you start eliminating those. And that's, again, where Tiger is definitely the best in the world, you know, that's ever lived at working his irons all over the place. He's also terrible at it with his driver. And so if Tiger would have just stuck to what he was doing in the, late nineties, early two thousands, when he was hitting 70% of the fairways, my understanding from everybody that played with him back then is like, dude, he didn't work the driver. He basically cut it every single time. And then he basically drew his irons for the most part. And people start to ask, is that okay? I'm like, yeah, that's exactly okay. And then you say it's okay, it's probably optimal because it's just signifying that ball position is changing. As you start moving irons further back in your stance, it starts becoming easier to draw them, which is why you'll see guys like Brooks and DJ and Zalators who like fading it when they get up on 10 and 13 at Augusta drop back to three wood. It's not because the club's gonna go too far. It's because they need to turn it over. And rather than trying to draw driver, they've learned they can just draw
0: three wood better. So one of the things I'm very curious about is, you know, anyone who's read uh, golf instruction books, golf strategy books, or taken a, a lesson, sort of like maybe a playing lesson with an instructor, they might look at decade with a critical eye and they might say, yeah, you're just sort of codifying common sense. Like people have said, aim for the fat side of the green or this or that. Like, what do you say to people that may be dismissive of a system like decade is just like, yeah, man, that's, that's common sense. (laughs)
2: Well, Stuart Sink hadn't won in 12 years. He bought the app out of the app store and he won the next week. Like if that's Stuart Sink, who hadn't lost his tour card in 20 plus years, doesn't have the ability to, I mean, again, he, what it did for Stuart specifically, what he said, he's like, I've just had this like internal unrest of like, I kind of know this, but like I can't commit to it. And and more than anything, Billy, you're probably, I I would bet just because you had a good career, but it's not like you were uh, a top 30 in the world guy. One of the main things I feel like good, solid playing professionals, what it really clears up for them is let's pretend we've got, we're out there at 180 yards. We've got a seven iron into the, the hole pins on the left. And there's a lake on the left. Like, yes, we're not idiots. We know to aim towards the middle of the green here, but the vast majority of guys will aim towards the middle of the green and then kind of hope they pull it. Have you ever done that, Billy?
3: We actually used to work on aiming away from flags on the range. Because there is this like inherent thing that you're not actually doing what you're supposed to do when you're aiming away from the flag, because you still see the flag in the corner of your eye, you know, and you kind of just subconsciously or consciously or like a little bit, oh, it'd be nice if I, you know, kind of squeezed it over there or whatever. But we actually did, did I did practice where it was like, I'm on the range and I'm going to aim 10 yards left of that flag. And that's where I'm trying to hit it.
2: Exactly. I mean, and and you're a disciplined military guy, and you can still appreciate that it's just hard to do. It's really hard.
3: You see the flag in the corner of your eye, and it's like, yeah, totally.
2: And so here, by definition, we're on a difficult shot. That's why we're aiming away from it in the first place. And then it sounds like you probably were actually better at it than most guys. But it's what Tiger talks about when he says, "I play aggressively to my spots, and my spots are probably more on the conservative side." The vast majority of tour players that I've worked with that you know are kind of mid range ish guys they're like, dude, I aim away from probably six or eight flags around and then hope I pull or push it close. And that's exactly what I say to them. You've never stood on a range and aimed at a flag and thought, I hope I pull it 15 feet. So here we are out there on the course, putting this kind of wishy-washy swing on it. And again, back to the outliers, I do believe that at the tour level, the vast majority of outlier shots, I shouldn't say at the tour level, at any level, the vast majority of outlier shots come from trying to work at the opposite direction of your stock shot or kind of hoping you pull or push it. So like if, if we're on now, we're on number 18 at TPC Sawgrass and we're aiming you know, our driver almost into the right rough and then kind of hoping we pull it, like by definition, if you're good at centering your shot pattern, 50-50, like we're aiming at a tree at the far end of the range, you should theoretically be able to center your shot pattern roughly half left and half right of it. So almost by definition now on, thir- on 18T at Sawgrass, I should be able to aim kind of right at the right rough line. And I rest assured that about half the time I'm going to pull it. So now in a four round event, theoretically, it should work out to 50, 50 ish, but almost as important as like, I always talk about winning requires luck the week that you just happen to hit three out of four shots in the left side of your shot pattern on 18 at sawgrass. That's just convenient in my opinion. Like that wasn't what you were trying to do, but this week you got probably about a quarter to a half of a shot bonus by that just happening to happen. And then if you run that script over and over again, you're just going to have a few weeks where a little bit of positive variance helps you somewhere between three and five shots over the course of the tournament. And that's almost, you know, a third to a half of what it requires to separate yourself uh, from the field average in order to win.
0: Yeah, I think so many of our listeners are probably very, very familiar with that 18th tee at Sawgrass. It's probably a perfect example of course strategy. There'd be some that would say, and, and Billy, there may be pros that you play with that would do this. They would actually look down a hazard line and say, I'm just going to cut it off that. And, and almost their, their idea is like, this ball's moving left to right, and it's just a matter of how much. There are a lot of strategies that that go into to those sorts of things. And one thing I'm curious about is at the professional level, there's the benefit of having Green's books and you know yardage books and you know pin sheets. When you think about an everyday golfer, uh, you know that may be playing their home course. They're familiar with it. What do you recommend they do? Do they should they estimate? Should they use GPS? Like wh- what are the tools and and sort of tricks that you would say everyday golfers should use as they strategize a golf course?
2: Well, I mean everything with decades. So back to the you know I, I didn't actually finish this point off with your question earlier. Like the idea of middle the green. The idea of middle of the green, since golf is the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform field of competition, middle of the green on number 18 at St. Andrews, where the green is 52 yards wide, is completely different information than middle of the green on number 10 at Pebble Beach, where the green is 17 yards wide. One hole's 356, one hole's 510. One hole has an ocean on the right. One hole has a village on the right. Like. It's just middle of the green is not good enough. And so, the, you know, your original point earlier was like, it's all common sense, middle of the green are at it. Like there's an inflection point between at the flag and middle of the green where the optimal target lay. It's typically not at the flag and it's typically not at the dead center of the green. And so learning how to, to, to figure out that, that that target. So that's essentially what decade does. And then, what was your point right there? That, that what did you just say that I was got started on there? Because then I'll finish it off. What I was
0: getting at is oh, that home you course, know, home course. Yeah, so, We could say pros have the advantage of yardage books and things like that. Yeah. You know how how should everyday golfers like? I'll, I'll give an example. Even in my own situation, having a laser rangefinder obviously gives you the the, the appropriate distance but there is amount of like estimating or guesswork where you would say, ah, you know, I think I'm, that's about four paces off the bunker edge or something like that. So you have to kind of do some estimating because you don't have a pin sheet.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, so I actually just shot a video with Frederick and Hannah a couple of weeks ago in Orlando and we're playing a golf course. Um, I can't think of what the name is off the top of my head, but we're playing a course, solid golf course, uh, just South of the convention center during the PGA show. And, We're out there. I've got my decade yardage book, which is just something that's free within the app. And then the greens are marked in five yard grids, just like they are in tour yardage books. You know, and they're like, well, how do we know where this pin is right here? I'm like, honestly, I just lasered the flag and then I lasered the lip of the right bunker and the two are identical. So I'm like, so that's enough information to tell me where it is depth wise on the green. And now... Using the length of the flag stick, I could tell you know, the flagstick's about a little bit over seven feet long, typically. I can use that for a little bit of perspective. I'm out in the middle of the fairway, and I basically dotted in the yardage book, ex- I mean, literally exactly where the pin was. And so, you know, this is depending on like, how good do you want to be? Like, that sounds like a lot of work, but once you know how to do it, it's just not that hard to do. Laser flag, laser lip. You can start to use, uh, if a pin is tucked behind a bunker in the front of the green, you can start to see like, well, that's even with the middle of the bunker and now you can go into the green and infer how far it is from the edge of the green. Because again, the real question of course, management is, is, you know, it's not where's the place to miss it. Like, and this is where it's hard because you'll hear tiger say all the time, like I missed it in the right spots this week. I don't view that as being the correct question. The correct question is how much do I not want to be short-sighted? And so the correct, the, you know, where's the place to miss is it? almost always towards the middle of the green Or less than a one-to-one ratio off the green and one-to-one ratio, meaning if a pin is five yards on the green, you are less than five yards off the green. It's amazing how much just being three or four yards off the green to a pin that's five yards on the green. That's just a chip shot but it's amazing how just going an extra two or three yards to six or seven yards off. Now, all of a sudden we're starting to have a flop shot. We're starting to make the, the, just the physical characteristics of the shot exponentially harder because we're having to open up the face, start using like the shot just gets harder really quick. And more importantly, while the proximity only falls like three, four or five feet, that doesn't sound like that much. It's like, well, how much harder is it? Well, every inch again from three to five feet every single inch is about one percent in your make rate so it's huge Like, like a three foot difference in proximity doesn't sound like much but what that's implying is that the inner portion of your shot pattern is compressed inside of that five foot to the whole window much more than the other one that's compressed around eight foot it's just unbelievable so i do think that using tools again if we're playing a golf tournament, we're going to have a pin sheet, you know, this is where it's kind of a cop-out. If we're playing a golf tournament, that's worth winning. We're going to have a pin sheet. We're going to have a yardage book. We're going to play a practice round. We're going to show up, you know, 15 minutes earlier to our tee time than most people think we're going to take the time to dot in our yardage book, where the pins are. We're going to try to do as much as this heavy lifting before we even tee off as we can. Again, you're just not going to, you won't go find a yardage book on the PGA tour right now that doesn't have the flag sticks dotted where they are before they tee off. That has some sort of numbers from different clubs. They've hit on that hole throughout the week and practice rounds and everything. And so I'm really just trying to teach people. Is that a lot of work? It is, but most people like shooting lower scores. And if you can do a little bit of work before the round and in post analysis for the next round, you, you really can make game of golf like from a strategic standpoint very simple and very fast so we, we were talking about lasers most
1: amateur golfers at their clubs you know they have lasers um probably don't use yardage books if it's your home course um probably don't have you know the detailed pin sheets you just described so for for your average golfer who's going out and wants to start to really think about where this shot should go you know we're standing in the fairway hundred yards out. I've got my laser in my hand. What two or three points do I need to laser to start to figure out, OK, this is the shot or the target I should be looking at?
2: I would definitely be trying to laser the flag and figuring out how far whatever I'm carrying online to the flag is. If there's one thing that, again, even PGA Tour players, and there's so many interesting data points that I'll be interested to see how they change with the shot link, like with the, shot, the strokes gain benchmarks. Now that, you know, I mean, virtually 100% of tour players know what it is that I'm doing. They're either doing it themselves or they have someone else that's doing it for them or I'm doing it for them. But just understanding that when the pin's towards the front of the green, everybody, tour players included, just suck. So taking enough club to a front pin, it's just unreal. So we're all playing for this like 80th percentile quasi-perfect shot and that by definition doesn't happen that often. And then we're all stunned when it doesn't. On the PGA Tour, players from 160 to 180 yards in the fairway hit the green 71% of the time to, to back pins. To front hole locations from the exact same distance, from the exact same starting condition, it drops from 71% to 57%. Like that, that's an, an amazing drop because to back hole locations, obviously, you can miss hit the, the ball and it's still going to cover to the front edge. So you're still going to get a green in regulation. But there's no reason that just because the pin is on the front, that all of a sudden that's not idea is not still possible. And you simply cannot make enough birdies to offset hitting the green 14% less. So, you know, the people at home, you definitely need to know the front number. You definitely need to know the pin. And again, this is where it gets difficult because speaking generically is is hard to do. But you want to take roughly five or six percent of the length of the shot. And you cannot try to carry it less than that on the front of the green. So to your point example, exactly of a hundred yards if we are you know let's say we're let's let's make it not a sandwich let's say we're 160 so let's say we're 155 to the front 160 to the pin well five percent of that shot is roughly eight yards if i were catting for someone the only number i would tell them is 163 i would be trying to i don't care how firm the greens are either i would be telling them to carry it past the pin um Most of the time you'll hear players out there, okay, 155 to the front, 160 to the pin. That means they're trying to land at like 157 or eight because they're trying to get a good look at birdie. And it's like, this just isn't the spot where I need you to get a good look at birdie. I'd much rather you just hit the green and have a simple two putt and then let your slight miss hits accidentally be close and have the kick in birdie putts. But for the most part, we're avoiding bogey far more than we're trying to make birdie.
1: What would you say to a golfer who, you know, let's say, and I'll use myself as an example, if If I'm at like 165, I could gas a nine iron or I'll say smooth an eight iron. So we've discussed like, okay, here's where we're going to try to hit it to. I've got effectively, you know, 14 choices in my bag. Obviously we're down to two. How does your system talk about helping players figure out which club to hit in that situation?
2: Sure. I mean, again, I would just, I would then have to say, well, have you actually figured out if that 165 is your gas to nine iron or eight iron? Because again, if it's your, per, it, it, just use as a concrete example myself. If I'm standing, you know, out on the range, no wind, no anything, and I hit an eight iron perfect, it's going to go about 165. I will never hit it 170. There is There's literally zero chance that. I hit that club 170 without conditions but I'm going to hit a whole bunch 160. I'm going to hit some 155. I may even hit some 150. So my 80th percentile 85th percentile eight iron is 165, but this is where it gets difficult. If I'm out there 162, I should just be hitting a full eight iron and trusting. Yeah. If I hit it perfect, it's going to go a little bit long. Um, I think way too many people try to take off of clubs way too often trying to be a little too exact Stuart Sink basically from from the videos that I've been able to watch from him and, and talk to him a little bit, he either's hitting a shot full five off ten off next club, full five off ten off next club. It's it's not golf is just such a game of approximates. Um, especially at the tour level where you're not using a range finder, like your distance is kind of right-ish, but it's just not it's just not an exact science, an exact sport. And so what we're really trying to do is pick exact targets and then trust, like I'm probably not going to hit it there. So I would tell you if you're in that scenario that you just laid out to a front and middle pin, I would just tell you to hit an eight. I wouldn't even tell you to soft it at all. Really. I would just tell you to hit it. If the pin was in the back and we were between those, that would be where I might start telling you to gas a nine again, but I'd really have to see, is he right? Cause that seems like a pretty big nine iron to me. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how big a guy you are, how far you hit it, but that's a pretty big nine iron. I would be interested to see what what I have players do is basically I want you to hit again, depending on how serious we're taking this 50, 60 shots with each club. Uh, and then you throw out your 20 ish, 25%, 20 ish shortest, because again, we can't let outliers destroy the mean. Um, so we throw out the shortest 20 ish percent. We average the rest and that's how far you carry that club. And it will always be shorter than, your 80th percentile shot and if it's not then you did something wrong um again back to the idea we can't let outliers destroy the mean if if you have some sort of a weird swing flaw where you either hit it absolutely on the screws or five percent of the time you whiff it we would not even consider the five percent of the time you whiff it because it's irrelevant information i'm either going to hit it on the screws 165 and perfect or it's going zero yards it's just a that's just an extreme example of why we discount some percentage of shots um yeah, and from then there it's just about it really is just about trusting that getting it on the green is the most important thing. And definitely with distance control with irons, you're probably just trying to be too exact. Subtle variances win. There's just so much that goes into it. Just stop trying to be pick exact targets. It's it's the snipers mentality people try to say, like aim small, miss small. I actually think it's aim small and just trust you're going to miss it big, but we still want to aim small. <laughs> and then
0: just ship your shotgun shot pattern at it and see what happens. I like that aim small, trust you're going to miss it big. That, that that should be a shirt, I think, that we uh, that we merchandise. I, I will well, say, I never, have...
2: I never, I never got to play with many caddies, and it's funny because whenever I was in my 20s, I played in the U.S. Open, I played in probably three or four or five corn fair events, but I didn't play with caddies that often. But every time I did, I hated it. I used to always just tell myself, again, maybe you've noticed I'm a little bit of an antisocial guy. I kind of like to just stay in my own little corner. I always just like, I just don't like chit chat with some guy I picked up that week. In hindsight, what I've realized it is, is I didn't like having to call my target to somebody else because I knew in my gut I'm not gonna hit it there. And then I didn't want to call a target that was away from a flag and then accidentally hit it close and not be able to take credit for it. Like, that's actually what was going on. It was really like a, uh, an ego self-preservation hatred than anything else. I just hated telling someone else my targets.
3: That's That's, that's one of my rules of clinics. Never tell them where you're aimed i mean exactly because if you get it in the air and 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 kind of make it look pretty they, they, don't, they don't need to know that that wasn't the flag i was going at They think it's great well, back
2: when, when when zalatoris hit the hole in one at Wingfoot in the u.s open sean martin the pga tour writer, he and i are a good friend so it wasn't people thought he was giving me a hard time we're, we're, we're really good buddies and he said zalatoris just hit a hole in one and the only thing faucet's going to want to talk about is the fact he wasn't aiming at the flag and i was like well he wasn't and so i sent will a text and I was like, all right, dude, what was your target? And he just replied. I think it was six or seven yards right. And so I just retweeted Sean's thing with the with the screencast of the tweet. And I'm like, he wasn't aiming at the flag. And with the kicker, that whole deal is that if you remember, he hit he had another one that dinked the flag. He almost had two hole-in-ones in the same round in the US Open. The other one dinked the flag. And he's like, that one was even further away from the flag.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the target on tour is so very rarely the flag. I, right. mean, I mean, especially on tour, because like, the flags it, are mean, so tucked. Yeah, they're so tucked. I mean, man, you get inside 100, we start aiming at flags. But that's, you know. For, and, but again, and that's,
2: exa- and that's exactly correct, though. So, again, the way decade works is, you, depending on your handicap level and everything, you start by taking some percentage of the length of the shot, and that's how far you're aiming from the edge of the green. So, at the tour level, that number is 5%. So, let's pretend we are 100 yards with a sand wedge. 5% of the length of the shot is 5 most of the pins on tour where you're going to have a sandwich in the green are going to be three to five from the edge of the green. So you are almost aiming at the flag, but if we go out to now the pin is still only four yards from the edge of the green and we're 200, that 5% number is 10. Now, as the shot gets longer, we're aiming more towards the middle of the green. But again, let's pretend we're playing St. Andrews where every green is 50 yards wide An average green is about 20, 22 yards wide. So yeah, from 200 yards, we're pretty much aiming at the middle of the green, but that still wouldn't be correct at St. Andrews. It's just, and and just because of the variances in all golf courses, it's just not remotely close enough to exact enough, unless you're just trying to be cynical against me to say either at it or towards the middle of the green, It's it's just not good enough.
3: I always think this is funny, Scott, because like what you're describing is trying to make people shoot lower scores. And, and I'm convinced that no golfer is actually after that, except at the very elite competitive level. Right, like it's I mean, interesting you said because
2: somebody tweeted that just yesterday. Somebody's like, I don't think most people are trying to shoot the low score. I'm like, really? Am I that weird? Like, that's the no, only that, thing they care about.
3: I know. I know. Well, that's the game. It's fewest strokes, right? That's but, the point but, of the game. But but they're not. It's because it, it, I've always wanted to go to a pro am and be like, hey, all right, here's what we're gonna do today. You're gonna do exactly what I tell you to do, and we're gonna win. It's not gonna be very much fun, right? Because we're gonna take seven iron from 100 and chip it to the front of the green, and we're gonna, you know hit five iron off of this tee and we're going to do you know this is not going to actually be very much fun but you'll take a trophy home if you listen yeah you know and so
2: you say that so whenever i started my electricity company back in 2002 there was a good five or six year period there where i probably won 75 scrambles a year but every single time like we'd get out there and my opponents or my opponents my, my playing partners my my clients would be like well, let me know my swing, you know what I can do with my swing. And I'm like, look, man, I'm a player. I don't teach mechanics at all. I would just be making stuff up that may or may not be right. But if you'll just let me tell you where to hit shots. And again, this predates decade, this predates everything. If you just let me tell you where to hit it and how to hit it there, you're going to shoot one of your best rounds ever. And I'm not kidding. I, I would bet you 30 to 50% of the time, the players shot their lowest round ever. And it's just by like, Just thinking a little bit better and this it's actually a quote from a raymond floyd book haven't thought about this in forever either but of raymond floyd uh whatever his secrets of scoring book or whatever it is he's on the on the back cover it i think it says um even if you and i switched had the exact same skills and we switched them i'd still beat you 99 times out of 100 because i understand how to play the game and i'm like that it's such a brilliant statement if you actually think about it but like i basically if someone will let me play them like a video game i mean zalatoris my kid's scoring average was over 72 his last year in high school. I go caddy for him at the Texas am two weeks after he graduated, he shoots four straight rounds under par, which is the first time he'd ever done that in a tournament. And we we went, we had like a little, uh, a little decompression the next day at lunch. And I'm like, this is going to sound weird to you, dude, but not only should your scoring average not be over par, you should never shoot over par, not at the courses you're playing. Like sure. Once you get on a tour, but I don't understand how you shoot over par. Like, again, his putting's a little dicey, but I was like, even factoring that in, I just literally don't think it's possible. For the next 12 months from that point forward, he shot over par one time. It was his first round ever on the PGA Tour at Riviera after he won the college showcase. That's literally it. He did not have a score kicked out his freshman year in college. And, And he's just like, He's so good, it's ridiculous. He just—he is a very standard case of somebody who hits it good and puts it bad. Now they are trying to play more aggressively. He's trying to make birdies with his approach shots, as opposed to just trusting the variance within his shot pattern will create those same scoring opportunities. And guess what? You're probably just going to score on the par fives anyways, and the couple sand wedges you have around. And then if we can avoid the stupid bogeys, like when you finish around a round of golf and think you should have shot lower. It's always the stupid bogeys. Like, ah, I tried to do too much with that sandwich, got it short-sided, you know, over one to one and just made a, a dumb bogey. Like that's the shots that decade is trying to clear up. And if there's a single listener here that doesn't finish a round of golf and think they should have shot lower, I'll be stunned. I mean, and again, that's just the most ubiquitous feeling in golf. I don't care how good you are. I mean, The, 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 lowest round I ever shot professionally, I shot 67 or eight in the first round of a teardrop tour event in Jackson, Mississippi, one time at Caroline country club with a double and a triple. I was in the late early, uh, tee times and I went home. I swear to God, I did not sleep a single second that night. I was so pissed off. And all I was thinking is about how this golf course you should shoot 59 on. I went out and birdied the first seven holes, lipped out on eight and nine birdied 10, 11 and 12. I'm standing on 12 T 10 under. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to do it. And then I parred the last six. And what did I do? I went right back to the Outback Steakhouse that night with Robbie Skinner and Dirk Mitchell, I'm sure. And talked about all the dumb shit I did in the last six holes are like, you just shot 10 under you were complaining yesterday about five under. Now you're complaining about 10 under, like, it doesn't matter. We all feel like we leave shots out there every single day. And it's like, I don't remember, but I bet something went well in those first 10 holes, 12 holes to Birdie, 10 of them. Didn't remember those. All I remembered was the stupid two up and downs I missed on par fives coming in.
3: Yeah, no golfers ever got a good break. Right. <clears> just throat> just, throat> just throat> focus on the focus on the bad breaks. That's right.
2: It's we're so, we're insane.
1: <laughs> so Scott, um, you're you're around a lot of professional golfers. You are around a lot of college golfers. You know, the last year and a half or so has been pretty tumultuous in golf. So we're just curious. We are a, uh, you know, a podcast that looks at all the professional golf landscape going on right now, when the microphones are off and there's no press around. What are people What are you hearing people say about the PGA Tour, about Live? You know, what are you hearing the college kids talk about? What What's going on when when no one's trying to get a sound bite?
2: You know, I really don't have any stories about that except for one. I've got a, a college player that was one of the top ranked amateurs last year that graduated. And he got a pretty big, you know, eight ish figure offer. And I was like, dude, I don't know how you don't take that. And, and his point was like, I could be 26 and have 10 million in the bank and have nothing to do. And I'm like, it's a tough place to be. I mean, again, <laughs> that, that sounded wrong. It is a tough place to be, though, because the kind of person that puts that kind of work into being that good at golf to now just have more money than you kind of really can actually spend um, and and really no way to actually move the needle financially ever again. Like even if you start teaching and making a one hundred or two thousand dollars a year, it's, it's just not going to move the needle. I think it is a really weird spot. I, I don't really. T- I, I mean one of my main players that I've talked with turned down a sizable nine figure deal. And I was like, I don't know how the hell you're doing that. Um, but I, I get it. Um, you know, the lift stuff, I I'm really indifferent on it because I really didn't, I don't watch much golf. So I didn't care when it all first went down. I thought it was, I did not think they'd pull it off. But then the first tournament that came along that didn't have all the players in it, I was like, Oh, you know what? This does kind of suck. I It's not the same without DJ. Like I'm two of my favorite players are DJ and Brooks. Like it does kind of suck not having them there, but now that they're going to play in the majors, it seems like, you know, I'll I'll be interested to see how live, how the majors do it. If they just say, you know what? We're going to give the top three on the money list, or we have three live wildcard picks. Like they're not going to have the world ranking points. Like, I think that's pretty safe. Even if they wind up giving them world ranking points, they're not going to have enough starts. So there's no way the world ranking system as it's currently set up is going to get a live guy in a major. So they either need to keep winning them every five years, which again, that's where cam Smith and Bryson with what they did. I'm like, you know what? They're in this position where they've got a ton of money. They're in the majors for the next five years, as long as they actually let them in. If you don't keep winning a major, at least every five years, you're not in any sort of a legacy goat type conversation anyway. So screw it, go take the money. And if in five years, you haven't won another major, then just keep printing your 5 million a year on the live tour. Um, I don't know, man, it's, it's a weird one. What do you, yeah, I mean, like, it, Billy? like what do you think about as, as a former player
3: yourself? Like, well, I'd prefer to be a current player, but, but, no, I, but I get it, that I sorry. haven't played. It's I get that I haven't player. played in a while. Yeah. yeah, yeah I haven't, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, I, 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 you know, I think I've said this before. I think competition is good for the marketplace <clears> and, um, I'm not mad at anybody who went and did it where it goes, what it'll be. We we are fond here of saying, we'll see. We, yeah. we you know, I mean, like, I don't, I, I don't think it's the worst thing on earth. I mean, I think they've got a lot of problems. I think they've got a lot of stuff they've got to sort through. I mean, you know, I think the PGA tour is going to, you know, make it hard for them. And, and, and so we'll see. Um, I, I do
2: look at the guys that left. And they do have to be looking back now and being like, wow, did I really just help the PGA tour players? Like guys like Will and them well, are going to make said, so much yeah. money. It's ridiculous. Uh, it,
3: it's it's unbelievable. I mean, I've said forever that, you know, all of us who have played in the last 20 years, owe half of our career money to tiger. And now everybody for the next 10 owes half of it to Phil.
2: Yes. I mean, that's, that's pretty accurate. You know, it's just, there's no way it would have gone as big as I think that if live had failed the players still would have uproared enough to get something, something, but, but this, this is what's been interesting to me. Cause again, like I, I actually love the tour championship format. And again, I know, like most people hate the handicap format, but I'm like the year that Rory won, I think it was Rory. Like he didn't even know he won and nobody knew he won until it was over. But like to just definitively be saying these two guys are playing for a $9 million Delta or whatever it is that's actually enough money that any of those guys are going to be noticing it. I mean, and you saw it with Scotty last year. Like it's just, that's a, that's a big, big number. I've been surprised the first two elevated events they really on the telecast. I mean, I haven't watched it that deep, you know, closely. They really haven't talked about the difference in this putt is worth X when that's the thing I want to know, like coming down the stretch is like, what is the difference in this putt? Like it is huge. you know, even just with, with Eric long this weekend, it's a lot of money to that guy between first and second. Like, I want to know what the differences are. And I I, I just think that they need to, I know they don't want to be obnoxious by playing up how much money it is on TV. The tour's about legacy, not money, Scott. It's about legacy. (laughs) Exactly. I this is where like, I'm uh, this is probably way too altruistic view. Anytime somebody says I'm playing for legacy, I just want to vomit. Like you're going to be dead. I, the idea of legacy, I do not understand at all. That is the most ego driven statement. I want people to remember me for years. Like no one's going to remember you for years. Like get out of your own head. Nobody, no one cares. Whatever that, that Travis Matthew had is no one cares.
0: Well, Scott, this has been a, a treat. I feel like we could go deeper on any of these threads, but we want to respect time. And we have a, a segment we call our Emergency Nine, some rapid-fire questions uh, that we want to we want to hit you with. So I'll start with one. Uh, what is your favorite golf course?
2: Oh, Augusta National, and it's not even close. I mean.
0: I don't know what it is just growing
2: up. That's the, that's the term. I always remember watching with my dad. I just always remember just being perfect fairway wall to wall, like for whatever. And I always said this growing up, and it's probably the dumbest thing to say, but like if you gave me one masters or each of the other three majors, I would take the one masters, which again, now that I'm 49, like, well, that was stupid. But I, I really said that when I was 25 and I really meant it. I think at the time, um, You know, unfortunately, if I had had died and never played Augusta, I don't think I would have been like, well, okay, nobody gets to play Augusta. It's not that big of a deal, but I did get to play it, but I played it the first week of November a few years ago. And so the overseed was just still this thin rye. It was soaking wet. The fairways were about an inch long. We played it from a step off the back. It was nowhere near Augusta National as I've known it. And so now if I don't get to play it again, I think I'll actually end my life pretty disappointed.
3: (laughs) All right. Well, what's your favorite golf course not on a on a competitive tour then?
2: I mean, I would have to think Cypress Point would be the next one I would say I would like to go play. I don't know what it is that Pine Valley never crosses my mind. Like, I know it's supposed to be the most amazing place out there, Um, but I would take Cypress would be the second place I would I would choose to play. All right. So you're going to Cypress. Who's rounding out your foursome?
1: Who's your dream foursome?
2: Oh, man, that's a good question. You know, I could get cheesy and just be like a couple of my, I mean, it would, it would probably be like a couple of my Robbie Skinner and Grant Masson are two of my best, uh, childhood buddies that I grew up playing high school and college golf with. And I would probably say those two and tiger, maybe, maybe if my dad and I could actually get through our stupid fights, I, I would take him along too. How about your favorite golf hole? Favorite golf hole. That is an interesting one. You know, I really love the, 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 Comparison of like number 17 at TPC Sawgrass and number 17 at PGA West. Just the idea of of how much wind starts to impact things. When you look at the overall sizes of the shot patterns on the two holes, 17 at at PGA West is four yards more narrow. The hole is 30 yards longer. The shot pattern is always smaller. The reason I believe that is, is A, yes, there's typically less wind there than there is in Florida. But B, on that hole, I mean, I've played it in final stage before. It is not fun. And you know, from that green is small enough and you know, no matter how dumb you are, the dead center of that green is your target. And every that stands on it is playing 100% committed to the dead center of that green because they're just trying to find their ball. And then you make the hole a little bit shorter and the green, a little bit wider, like 17 at sawgrass to where technically the dead center of the green, isn't the target it's close to it, but it's probably, with, you know, favoring towards any edge by about four or five yards but then you'll get guys that are just not quite committed to that. And so you'll see outlier shots. And again, I know that's two holes, but I I think I really enjoy watching how those two holes always play out each year.
1: What's your favorite
2: club in the bag? The one you trust more than anything else driver. Well, technically my mini driver right now, I love this mini driver. You can do absolutely anything with it. Um, But, uh, but I've, I've always been a pretty, I feel like that's what I don't, would probably actually hurt me as much in my game back in the day is just because I drive it pretty long and pretty straight. I've, I've always been fairly good at the game and I, I feel like I didn't realize how bad probably my chipping and putting actually was. Um, So I probably, but drivers by far, I just love hitting it far. I think this is one of the funniest arguments about, on on Twitter that I get into where people are just like the majesty of the game and length is destroying courses. I'm like, yeah, but it's just so fun to tattoo one and just watch it sail forever. It is so fun.
3: Yeah, that's certainly true. So now based on like your statistical analysis and decade and stuff, who's the tour pro that's kind of flying under the radar right now?
2: Well, he's not as much anymore as he was when we first started working together about 15 months ago. But Keith Mitchell, I mean, this guy is so good he drives it so well you know this is where it's hard at the end of last year he was like okay i want to like what do i need to do to to take that next step you know and i won't say what i thought it was but he was like you know i need to hit my irons better i'm like but you better be careful because you drive it so well we've got a strong grip the ball's up in your stance you start trying to change the swing with your irons a little bit as you, you know as you start moving the ball back in your stance that strong grip starts becoming different and I, I'm actually trying to tinker with something right now where I'm trying to like really weaken my, my iron grip and strengthen my driver grip. So I've kind of got two separate swings, but you know, you get a guy like Keith, who's not necessarily the best with his irons. But again, at the end of the day, I'm like, if you can drive it that well, you can hit your irons at least decent. Once we can get him committed a little bit better to targets and shaping his irons a little bit less. And then he's been putting some great work in with speed control on his putting. And then if he can do the other couple of things we're talking about, like, I do think that guy's a top 10 in the world guy i mean you just he just has 180 plus ball speed and hits it on a rope like it's kind of hard to screw it up from there all right everyone was ch- talking about tiger's
1: return at riviera give <laughs> us your thoughts what are we what are we going to see
2: from this next chapter of tiger has he got a major Nothing. in him does he have a tournament in him no no i mean i hate saying it i mean you're not you're not going to find a bigger tiger fan than me i mean I know everybody's like a tiger fan or whatever, but like, you know, I'm a little bit older than Billy. So I'm, I'm two years older than tiger. You know, I never played junior golf with him or anything like that, but I've been following this career from day one. And I've just, it's just, I don't think people can appreciate how absurd it is what he did on the golf course. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. He's in my opinion, by far the most dominant athlete of their sport of anything that's ever lived. But I mean, my understanding from people I've talked to about the wreck is like, there was just like 10 spots where the bones are just sticking out of his leg. Like it was literally mangled. You're just not going to walk on that well. You're not going to push off of that well. I do wish he would just take a cart if, if it was available to him at the PGA, but you're not going to get an easier walk at Riviera. And I, I will say that like, I was encouraged. I mean, obviously he played really well the first round, but the cynic in me was like, yeah, but what if that was, like, as good as he can do? Like, so he did just happen to shoot a 10 percentile round that, like, that's, you know, top 10 percent round. Then when he came back the second day, obviously, it was on the heels of of uh, the the stuff with JT. He played pretty solid, except for missing some small putts, but I, I gave him a little bit of a, a pass thinking, you know, maybe it's just because he was a little distracted. And They played pretty good on Saturday, but, like, he just hit the wall on Sunday, and again, you're just you're not going to find an easier walk than Riviera, except for walking down the hill on one and walking up that hill at 18. It's about as simple as it gets. The tee boxes are right on top of the greens. It's pretty damn flat down there in that valley, and he still was. I'm assuming just smoked, you know. And that's where again, you you, I, I know that a lot of people on Twitter that were like, you know, you're going to see him win again and win multiple majors. Like I'm hoping they're just talking with their heart. Because I think that anybody that knows anything about the game is like, yeah, I wish he would, man, but I don't see it happening. And then for Tiger himself to even finish up and be like, Yeah, you're not gonna see me playing much. Like that kind of sucked. He's I definitely I feel bad for the guy because I do feel like he has to feel like he has to do it to some extent. I mean, there's like a part with me with the champions tour, I really want to try to play it, but I really just want to sit down at the end of the year and be like, Yeah, I mean, I won twice, and I made some money, and I had a lot of fun, but then when I think of the day-to-day of hitting the gym hard, doing the speed training like Padraig Harrington is doing, traveling 22 weeks a year while my daughters are 10 and 13, like, do I really want to do that? Not really, and I feel like Tiger has to be in a pretty similar spot where he's not going to just show up at the majors and do anything but miss cuts if he's not working his ass off year-round. And there's got to be a part in this, like, dude, I've been working my ass off for 50 years. And now not only is it not that much fun, it's really painful. That's just, I I feel like, you know, we've gotten enough out of the guy. Like, I feel like we should all just be like, dude, show up at Augusta, use a cart. Everybody, no one cares. Use a cart, have some fun, play the majors and take care of yourself, man. I mean, he's, I'm not gonna say Tigers had a hard life, (laughs) but there's a lot more to it than I think a lot of people can possibly imagine there's nothing I've ever wanted to be more than the greatest golfer of all time. But if you asked me if I could trade lives with tiger and money and everything right now, I would not do it. Not in a heartbeat.
0: That's, that's a provocative statement there. We could probably spend a whole podcast talking on, on that one. Uh, let me, let me get you out of here on these last two questions. Uh, you obviously have a lot of history with Will Al Many consider him, you know, maybe the best player to have not won a major yet. And he certainly had a lot of close calls last year, let me put you on the spot over under Will's Alatoris majors. I'll set the over under line at 1.5. Over.
2: Three was going to be the number where I have the inflection of like getting to three. Like that's a lot of majors. I mean, the kid just hits it so good. And I mean, again, this is why I get myself with trouble with Faxon and Hicks and those guys on Twitter is just, it's like Jim Furyk when he, the first five years on tour, all the announcers talked about is like this guy's gonna have to change this 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 and this and then after about five years they're like you know what the guy kind of stripes it i'm sure he's not going to get much power with everything that's going on which was basically his biggest limiting factor in his career of being the number two all-time money (laughs) winner on the pga tour but will i again i don't disagree it's not pretty to watch but at the end of the day his his average, I I think his final make rate last year from three, four and five feet, he's in like the 180th rank on tour, but he's about 3% worse than tour average. You only have two and a half putts a day from three to five feet. It's 0.07 shots. It's not ideal, but it's also not the end of the world. What's the end of the world is when you miss a four foot putt and you start getting all pissed and you dwell on it and you live on it for 20 minutes and make mistakes moving forward. Will, because of what we've worked on for eight years now with meditation, mindfulness, staying present, he doesn't do that. He misses a putt and sure. He's like, well, that sucked, but then he moves on. And that's what anybody is capable of doing. And so you're just not going to find somebody that hits it better than Will. Like, and it's been rewarding to see him be number one in strokes gain approach last year, because I'm like, if this kid isn't, I want to play with whoever is because I've just never I played a lot of golf with Fred couples in the mid nineties when he was a member at Glen Eagles here, where I grew up in Dallas and every shot he hit was out of the dead center of the club face. I've never seen anyone remotely close to it until will. And I've gotten to play with a lot of good players. And so the kids just always going to ball strike it in there. And then the most important thing about why he's going to win majors is because in majors, the greens get really fast. Which makes the ball break a whole bunch, and so your line, as bizarre as the sounds, is not the most important aspect in putting on fast screens. Your speed control is, because if you think about if you think about a, a an eight foot putt that's breaking two cups outside the right, if you hit it a little too soft, it's going to start breaking sooner. If you hit a little too hard, it's going to start breaking later. So actually, given the identical read and start line your shot pattern becomes wider because of your speed control than even your start line, which is really, really hard for people to wrap their head around. But this is why will just every single year has been right there in the hunt in these majors. And then going into the British this year, everyone's like, he's going to win. I'm like, no, this isn't his one because the greens are slow and flat. And this is one where line becomes slightly more important and that's not his strongest suit. So the British is definitely the hardest one for him to win. The Masters would be the easiest. The U.S. Open probably the second. And then the PGA just depends on how the, uh, the, the, the course is that year.
3: All right. Well, we'll get you out of here on this, Scott. Um, we are the Living It Up podcast. So we want to know what you do outside of golf and work to live it up not enough since
2: COVID started. I don't think I realized how much of a hermit I'd become. Like, again, obviously, you know, to keep referring back to Twitter, but like, I don't feel like I realized how much of like a, a quasi depressed uh, introverted funk I had worked myself into over the last three years. And so I'm trying to get out. But I mean, honestly, if I'm not sitting here working or I don't ever really hit balls in my simulator, unfortunately, I'm either at the gym working out or having dinner and drinks with my wife. I I, I got to do more though.
0: And there
3: are worse <laughs> things to spend your time on. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
0: well, well, Scott, this was a treat. I I really enjoyed chatting with you, learning a bit more about the decade system. We'll have to have you back on, hopefully after Will Zalatoris has clipped that first major. But uh, this was a ton of fun, and thank you for your time.
2: Thank you. You let me know when I'll always do it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Living It Up podcast. Follow us on the Twitters at Living It Up Pod. See you there.